Welcome to the ASHG Trainee Paper Spotlight Podcast. I'm Lucia Hindorf, and along with my co-host Andrew Marderstein, we'll be bringing you the science and the stories behind outstanding papers written by ASHG trainee members. You can find these papers or nominate your own paper on the ASHG website at ashg.org by searching for Trainee Paper Spotlight. Today's episode features a paper by Anna Miller, published in Genes, Genomes, Genetics in December 2020. The title is A Novel Mapping Strategy Utilizing Mouse Chromosome Substitution Strains Identifies Multiple Epistatic Interactions That Regulate Complex Traits. Anna is a fourth-year PhD student at Case Western and works on a range of projects in mice and humans. This study highlights the importance of assessing how genetic loci interact in mouse models to better understand the genetic architecture of complex disease. You'll also hear about what motivated her to go into genetics, her adventures in becoming a computational biologist, and tips for keeping track of multiple projects. And now, I'll let my co-host Andrew take it away. So hi, Anna. Can you tell us uh, about yourself? Hi, Andrew. I'm a fourth-year PhD student studying genetic and genome sciences at Case Western in Cleveland, Ohio. Yeah, and so how did you originally become interested in studying genetics? I actually um, went to a genetic counselor when I was in middle school. My family had a high rate of breast cancer in our family, and we found out that we had a uh, mutation that was deemed um, of unknown significance at the time. And then several years later, it became known of it was cancer causing. And I just found this to be a really empowering experience where, you know, for years I knew that cancer was common in my family, but now I actually know why. And now I can get the treatment I need and the preventative care. Um, so that really inspired me to want to help others to also find these, un- oh no, unfortunate to find out that you have a gene that increases your risk of a disease, but also now you have the knowledge and the power to do something about it. Yeah, for me, it was a very similar story. Also, like uh, family history of genetic disease and wanted to get involved. Uh, So did you start, like, when did you start, you know, cultivating this passion for genetics? Was it like middle school, high school? Was it college? Yeah, my high school was lucky enough to actually have a genetics class. So I took a semester of genetics in high school. It was more like genetic counseling, but um, I got to get an idea of mode of inheritance and the basics of genetics really early on. So when I was in college, I knew right away that I wanted to study biology and, and do some research involving genetics. Yeah. And what do you study in college? I worked in Drosophila, which I realized after that experience, I wasn't interested in doing long-term, but I studied that HOP8 gene. It's a transcriptome, a transposable element. And so we, we were watching how um, eye color was changing based on this specific element was jumping in and out of the gene. Nice. And then this, I guess, brought you to essentially your PhD research, where in 2020, you published in Genes, Genomes, and Genetics on the use of a new mouse model for finding genetic interactions. So I've also spent time studying these interactions, and they're a fundamentally hard problem. And so how did this project come together? Yeah, so I have a great collaborator, um, as well as my PI, who had previously been working on using whole chromosome substitutions. And I'm trying to see if we could find um, epistasis in, in, in a kind of a larger sense. 
and, and this led to this new project where we were able to use the mouse chromosome substitution strain. We were able to look at a mouse that was, while primarily of the same background, it had smaller chunks that we were able to look at to compare epistasis um, across chromosomes. Yeah, and this is can be really complex, especially in humans, to look at. There's just so much background noise, so much more happening. There's likely you know, higher order actions or interactions from your environment that we just can't um, easily look at in humans. So using this model has been really helpful. Great, great. So how do you use this model in your inner study? Great. So in the study, we have we looked at both um, physical traits, such as blood traits, body weight, um, glucose levels, etc., as well as gene expression levels. And we were able to look at um, do statistical tests to look at the difference between an individual who had the different genotypes, whether they had the minor allele homozygote or the major allele homozygote for two different SNPs, and look at the different combinations. And so there's a really great graph in there that I'm going to try to explain, but if, if you just want to look at the graph, um, it might be easier. So we see that an individual who has the background, which is the black six mouse, is at a specific uh, value average for whatever the trait is. And then when we see uh, one substitution being happening for either of the SNPs, so if or either of the sites have an, an AJ data, uh, genetic data there instead of the black six mouse, we see that they both either increase a little bit incrementally or decrease a little bit incrementally. And so then we would expect that when we had a mouse with both substitutions, we would see a, like a larger increase or a larger decrease. But instead we see that it moves back towards um, the center mirroring the black six mouse. So we see a, 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 either an increase or a decrease that we wouldn't expect by an additive model. Therefore, something else must be happening there. Yeah, that's bizarre because I guess it, you sort of have the background where, let's say that is sort of the population. You move away from the population with one allele, but then carrying the other one puts you back at the population average. Right. That's sort of so what's there, going on. Exactly. So there must be something happening in between those two, those two different sites that is causing, um, causing it to come back towards the background. Exactly. Yeah. Have you, have you thought about mechanistically maybe what could possibly be going on? Yeah, unfortunately, we haven't quite gotten that far. That's really one of the next steps. We've seen um, a couple um, uh, interesting-ish genes that we, we mentioned on in the paper, but nothing that seems like largely largely interesting at this time. That's that's really our next step. Yeah, and, and so what do you think like the implications for finding all these interactions is? I think it would be really awesome if we were able to take this, this data that we're finding in our mice and, and move them into humans. So we can look at um, what is the actual gene that we're seeing that is um, that is being involved in one of these interactions and is that there is the same gene in human. And maybe we're seeing the exact same interactions happening in humans. And instead of buying, um, you know, looking at baseball regions, we can just look by different genes and therefore um, find the same effects, which might lead to uh, differences in how we prescribe medication or um, differences in, in a way that we treat disease. Yeah, Deb, I mean, so these interactions in humans, they've been really hard to find. So what do you think could be some of the reasons that humans and the mouse models revealed two very different stories of epistasis? Yeah, I think one of the greatest benefits of this model is that there's the same background. So there's no variation of, um, of other SNPs. So it, it's very likely that what we're looking at, we're looking at very complex diseases. There might be three, four, five plus, you know, different genes that are involved, all causing an incremental change that um, inflicts disease. So that's really, really difficult to statistically detect in humans. 
And when we use the mice, we, we remove a lot of that challenges. Same thing for things like diet. We know that diet, your environment, your stress level, all sorts of environmental factors can affect your disease, your access to care, so on and so forth. And so when we use a model like a mouse, we really get rid of all of that. I mean, completely controlling their diet, everything is um, uh, kept at the same norm across the different populations. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, learning the computational skills to handle this project and what you need to go through? Absolutely. Yeah. Before this was um, one of my first projects uh, that I started in graduate school. And before I came to graduate school, I did not have any experience in computational science. I worked at the bench in in Drosophila, um, lots of pipetting. And so this was really my first um, adventure in in R and Linux. I got to use Plink to do statistical analyses that I had done before. Same thing in R. Um, So it was really the first time I explored the world of statistical genetics in general. So I think that was that was a huge um, learning process for me. And it's, it's something that definitely this project makes me more excited about statistical genetics in the future. It's something that I, I hope to work on um, in, in the rest of my thesis as well as the rest of my career. Just just learning how to upload a file into R, you know, the first day was very difficult. I definitely came a long way through this project for sure. Is there anything you would suggest to other trainees that want to learn more computational research? Oh, if you can take a class, I would highly recommend it. I, I, um, I think sometimes computational classes seem hard or um, they can be really nitpicky feeling, but it's so helpful the more education I, I took. I also, um, there's so many resources on YouTube. I watched a lot of YouTube tutorials. That was really helpful. Um, as well as if you just have someone in your lab who's, who's willing and um, patient enough to walk through it, I think um, it can feel like you're fumbling alone. And sometimes it's just, you know, you forgot a comma and how frustrating that can be when you're when you're first starting. I definitely recommend um, getting some help, getting some people to um, support you as, as you start your adventure in computational science. Yeah. And so overall, did you see any surprises by basically applying a lot of the computational techniques. I was one of the things that we haven't mentioned that I, we were really excited about was how we were able to find both um, trans and cis effects. That was really exciting that we were able to see that the effects of the epistasis we were finding were both within the same chromosome as well as working across chromosomes. So for example, uh, a gene on chromosome one or a locus on gene on chromosome one and a locus on chromosome two could be affecting a gene on chromosome three. So it wasn't all you know within the same space and just how interactive these complex traits are and how, um, right, like they're probably even more complex in, in humans, uh, not the same background. We're probably seeing these these changes happening all across the genome causing really complex uh, outcomes. Yeah, definitely. So have you been working on other research projects too? Yes. Yeah, so I also have um, been working on projects in humans. I studied um, the ApeWell1 gene which is involved in both a kidney disease as well as, um, oh, and it's, it's protective against tryptomyosis, which is sleeping sickness. And my lab has shown that we think it's also involved in birth outcomes. So I've done a little bit of research of that, about how we see that in African-American women who have this gene, they might be at a higher rate of having a preterm birth. So I've done a little bit of work there. And I also have another project where I work on um, H. pylori infection and how that causes gastric cancer. That's a really interesting story um, and and a complex one where we see that uh, in in Central America, if you live on the mountains versus if you live on the coast, you have the same rate of H. pylori infection, but you have a really different rate of gastric cancer. 
And so we think it's, it's a number of things. Um, the people in the mountains um, primarily use wood stoves to heat their homes. And so we think that causes more uh, uh, carcinogenesis to happen more frequently. Also, if you just look at the history of the migration of people when slavery forced um, individuals over, we see that people who reside on the coast are primarily of African ancestry, where people who live up in the mountains who are pushed over are primarily of the indigenous populations. And so we think that there might be some um, effects that happened based on the H. pylori that came over with, with the African individuals. And so their bodies just didn't evolve with that specific bacteria. And, and we think that's also causes this variability in disease as well. So you have so many different projects. I'm really lucky and then I get to work on a lot of different different projects in my lab for sure. Yeah, what, what suggestions do you have for juggling all these different projects at once? I think open communication is definitely the most important thing to have. Um, being able to say, tell your PI who you're working with that you just don't have time to work on a project uh, that specific week. It's been super helpful for me. Um, I'm also a very organized person. I like to have all my spreadsheets of what's the next step in each project. So if I have to pause a project to work on something else for a month or say, I can jump right back in um, without any lost time. So taking good notes and having some sort of walkthrough that you can follow and um, stay up to date on your projects has been really helpful for me. And so... Finally, what's what's next for you, whether it's tackling these other projects or thinking about your next career steps? What, what are you thinking about? My my next step in the project is that we're, we're trying to move more towards humans. We're hoping to use some publicly available uh, mouse data in order to to do some of that more fine mapping that um, that will then be able to lead us to work in humans. So that's the next task when it comes to my thesis. My next step overall is still uh, kind of up in the air. I'm not 100% certain what I want to do long term. I'm pretty sure that I don't want to stay in academia. So I'm, I'm doing the, the whole talking to different people in industry, um, where I would fit in. Um, do I want to do a postdoc? Do I want to go straight into the community? Um, still really figuring that out. Yeah. So. What are you most excited about when it comes to industry or something else? Yeah, I'm excited by the opportunities there. I'm excited about having... Um, uh, not having to work on the weekends as often as, as I do right now as a, an undergrad or as a graduate student, which I'm sure will be, um, no matter where you go, you'll have a little bit more flexibility. So yeah, I'm just excited to see what else is available for me to tip my feet in and um, different research that's happening. Great. All right. This was uh, interviewing with Anna Miller, who's a PhD student at Case Western. And thank you so much for joining us today.